Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 8. That's page 835 in the Bibles around the room. I will read, and then when I'm done, I'll say, this is a reading of God's word, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we respond that way because we are so thankful that we get to hear God speak today. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. Hallelujah to the risen King. The tomb is empty and our spirits are full. Jesus, our Lord, is alive. God, we come before you today, humbled by your power. We are in awe of your majesty. We are amazed by your grace. We are grateful for your abundant mercy. We rejoice in your victory. Thank you, Lord. Our salvation belongs to you. God, you are with us always. Help us to be reflections of your glory, of your love. Point our hearts to you as we join our brothers and sisters in celebration of your ascension to the throne. Bless Jesus Christ, our King. God, be with Pastor Kyle as he moves through your holy word. We pray in your name. Amen. Happy Easter. He is risen, church. Uh, good morning. My name is Kyle. If you're a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, we're about to go through the Bible because of this church. That's what we love to do. And if you don't have a Bible open, grab one of the ones we set around the room and open it up to Matthew chapter 28. It's going to be on page 835 on the Bibles we set around the room. And uh, we're going to be starting in 28 verse 1. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, the large numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. Um, also, if you're new to church, you might be wondering, why, why are we doing this whole singing thing? 
Why are people raising their hands? Might feel a little weird and awkward for you. But what that is is simply this. Music is the language of the heart. And so when Christians sing to God, we're giving God our heart. When we're raising our hands, we're not trying to air out our armpits or raise the roof or anything like that. We're simply giving praise to the one whom we believe is worthy of all praise. And so for the last week, this last Holy Week, starting last Sunday, we've been asking the question, who does the Bible say Jesus is? Who is the real Jesus? On Palm Sunday, we discovered that Jesus is the prophet. Not just a prophet, a revealer of truth, but the prophet. The prophet who was promised to be greater than Moses. The prophet who, kind of like Moses, would meet with God face to face, though he had been meeting with God face to face for all eternity. He is the prophet in that he is the word of God. Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the children's um, Jesus Storybook Bible, she says, Jesus is the word of God, meaning he is everything God wanted to communicate to a man in a person. Therefore, we listen to him. On Friday, we realize that Jesus is the criminal. Not that he is a criminal for the things that he's done, but He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He hung on the cross as a substitute criminal. The sins of humanity, the sins of of those who would believe in him were laid upon his shoulders. He had done nothing wrong, but he substituted himself for us. And because of that, we are thankful for him. But if all you have is a Jesus who is a good teacher and a revealer of truth and and another man who died, he's no different than any other religious teacher. But what makes Jesus so different? Easter Sunday. Because he rose from the grave. And here we see that Jesus is risen and it shows us that this means that Jesus is is really Lord. And that's my main point for today. The real Jesus is really Lord. Therefore, we worship him. And so we're going to flow through this text in three points. We're going to look at how the tomb was really empty. Something really happened and Jesus is really Lord. Let's look at this first. Verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. These two Marys are disciples of Jesus. Uh, Mary Magdalene was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her, and then she became a follower of Jesus. The other Mary is a disciple who loves her Lord. It's not, it's not Jesus' mom, Mary, just to make that clear. There's lots of Marys back then. But they come to the tomb. Now these two women had been uh, there when Jesus died. They saw him take his last breath. They helped him get him down off the cross. They saw him being put where he was laid in the grave. And so they come to the tomb with sadness in their hearts. The other Gospels tell us that they're carrying spices to honor the body of Jesus. They're filled with grief, sorrow, and disappointment. Disappointment because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king, and they had no category for a king who would die. A Messiah who would die. And when they get there, they see something amazing. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. Imagine that. 
They're there, they're sad, they're carrying spices, and then all of a sudden, an earthquake. Now, this is significant. Because Jesus, on Palm Sunday, when he was riding out of town and people were praising him, the Pharisees said, shut the people up. And he said, if you shut them up, the very stones will cry out. And what do we see here happening as the earthquake happens? The stones are crying out. And then an angel sits on top of the stone that they rolled away, that he rolled away. He sits there now. And now here's what you have to understand. Every time that angels are are revealed in the Bible, they only show up when God is about to reveal in a special way his glory. And his appearance was, his clothing was white, whiter than any bleach could make it. And his appearance was like lightning. He was a warrior of light. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of angels. Maybe you think of pretty women with wings. Maybe you think of fat little babies with wings. But angels in the Bible are warriors of light. And he sits on this stone. And any first century person would have understand that this is a symbol of victory and triumph. And what he's displaying for us is that heaven has broken through and God has triumphed over death. In verse 4, and for the fear of him, guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The angel said to them, he's not here. This is a tomb. Tombs are for dead people. And Jesus is not dead. He is risen. He was dead, but he's not dead anymore. He is risen. And he did this as he said. Jesus had proclaimed very clearly Jesus would die and then three days later be raised from the grave. They thought it was some, another teaching of Jesus, another parable that they didn't quite understand, but it really happened. And the angel says to them, come and see. Now this invitation to come and see is an invitation from God to all of us to come and investigate. To look at the facts. God is not interested in simply blind faith to people who have visions and then just all of a sudden go cuckoo and running after him. He wants us to look at the historical facts. Come and see. Christianity is a reaction, not an invention. It's a reaction to historical events, not an invention to to make themselves feel good. He says, come and see. Come and investigate. And then He says in verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So this is what he says. Come and see, be changed, then go and tell. That's what Christianity is all about. Come and see, go and tell. Many people think that Christianity is about rule following and and keeping up impeccable religious performance as if you could please and impress God. Like you could really impress God. God is not impressed by you. Nobody's impressed by you. God is not impressed by you. (laughs) But you are loved by him. And he's done great things for you. Christianity is not as much about what we do for God. It's about coming and seeing what God has done for us and then being changed by that and going into the world and proclaiming that to the world. 
And he says, go and tell the other disciples that we're not, we're not supposed to just proclaim this to people who don't know it already. We're also supposed to proclaim it to those who do as a reminder and encouragement that God has broken through and done something awesome. And in verse uh, 8, it says, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So they came to the tomb with grief and sorrow and disappointment, but they leave running away with fear and great joy. Everything changed for them this morning. What a difference the empty tomb will make in your life. Everything changed. They had fear. Now, this is not the kind of fear that, a, that a, um, an abused dog has because its master is being malicious. It's the kind of fear that somebody has when they encounter something so glorious, so powerful, that, they're re- that they, they just feel impotent and small and vulnerable and, and exposed, but also loved at the same time. Two years ago, I went backpacking with my son and some friends, and, and uh, the, the men, we were men. We didn't have tents. We, we stayed out underneath the stars. And I woke up in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. And I just remember there was no moon. And I just looked up and I saw the millions and millions and millions and millions of stars. And I started to tremble. Because I realized how small I was. But I also felt loved. Because I knew that on the other end of all those stars, there's the God holding the galaxies together. And he died for me. It is fear and joy mixed together at the same time. And that's what they had. And the joy that they had was because if Jesus really is alive, then the implications are massive. It means that he's done the impossible. Every wild claim that the Bible makes about Jesus, every wild claim that Jesus made about himself in the resurrection has proven to be true. Growing up, when somebody would say something crazy, we would say, prove it. In high school, we had friends that I can dunk a basketball. We would say, prove it. And if there was no basketball hoop or basketball around, we would try to find something that was about 10 and a half feet and say, jump up there and touch that, and that'll prove that you can dunk a basketball. And if they could, we'd say, okay, you proved it. Well, the claims about Jesus were claims that only God could do, things that only God could do. He could forgive sins. He could, do, he could raise people from the dead. Only God could do that. And what does the resurrection show us? He's proved it. So the implications are massive. It means that he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On Friday, he made the payment for our sins. On Sunday, the check cleared. On Sunday, he proved that his bank account was deep enough. He really is the Messiah, the son of David, whose kingdom has no end. All other kingdoms die and they go to the grave. But Jesus resurrected from the grave and proves to be the King of Kings. And what this meant for these two disciples, it meant this, that they had abandoned everything and they weren't crazy. Because Jesus really is the promised Messiah. It means he really is the door and the access point to God. On Thursday night, he told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. That's a wild claim that only God could make. But in the resurrection, he shows us, no, you really can get to God through me now. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to make sacrifice. You don't have to bring your little furry goat to church every week to sacrifice, to talk to God. You get to go straight to God through Jesus Christ. 
It proves that he really is the head crusher. In Genesis chapter 3, after sin entered the world, God looked at the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, and he said, look, one of the woman's offspring will be born. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And on the cross, what was Jesus doing? He was being bruised, but in the resurrection, Jesus was crushing the head of the serpent. And you ask, well, why does evil still exist? Well, it's because the serpent knows that he is defeated and his time is running short. He's like a snake or a dragon whose head is crushed, but he's still whipping around his tail with great fury. Your enemy has been defeated. And then lastly, he shows that he really is the resurrection and the life. He said this to his disciples. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And what this means for us is it means that death does not have to have the final word over your life. As a musician ambassador says, now because of the resurrection, death is just a comma. It's no longer a period. It doesn't have to have the final word. And so they left with great joy and they're going to tell the disciples. And then it says in verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now this is so funny to me because I wonder if Jesus was like hiding in the bushes the whole time. Have you ever been to San Francisco and there's the bushman down by the wharf? He like jumps out and scares you. That's what I kind of picture Jesus doing here. Jumping out. Greetings. And this word greetings means hello with exceeding joy. It's the kind of thing, you know, I have a friend and she doesn't, she comes over to our house and she's deaf. So she speaks really loudly and she comes over to our house and she says, she doesn't say hi. She says, it's so good to see you. It's the kind of greeting that can make a sad day turn around. And it was so good to see him. And how did they respond? It says, and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Look at that there. They took hold of his feet. This is showing us that this is the claim of Jesus resurrecting. It's not a spiritual resurrection. They, you can't grab a ghost's feet. They took hold of his feet because he physically resurrected. And then it says that they worshipped him. And what did Jesus do as they worshipped him? He simply received it. Now this is massive because Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you worship. And in other places, people see angels and they fall down and they worship him. And the angels are like, stop worshiping me. I'm not God. But here, Jesus, in his glory, has his disciples worshiping him and he simply receives it. Why? Because the claim of Jesus is Jesus is really Lord and he's really God and he's really worth all of our worship. And he says to them in verse 10, then he said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Go and tell my brothers. So here you see again, come and see, go and tell. And what does he say? Go and tell my brothers. Now this phrase is pregnant with grace and kindness and mercy and love toward his disciples. Why? Who were the brothers? The 11 disciples. And what did they do to him on Thursday night? They all abandoned him. They had all told him, hey, if something goes down, we'll die for you. But when the trial came and the soldiers came, they all fled. The sheep abandoned their shepherd. But here the risen Lord shows us that he's a shepherd who will never abandon his sheep. So they go. And they're not the only ones who go. Now we get to the second part of this. Something really happened. The other guards... 
It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So there were some guards, some of these guards who had fainted as though dead. They, they get up and they go and they tell the religious leaders and they're like, hey, th- something crazy happened. Like we were there, we were alert and uh, an earthquake and then all of a sudden a warrior of light. We thought we were dead. Turns out we weren't, but the tomb's empty. It says, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And the religious leaders said this, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So something really happened. Because you see, in this paragraph, neither the guards nor the religious leaders denied the empty tomb. And the word of the empty tomb spread. And if the tomb wasn't really empty, all the religious leaders and soldiers had to do was dig up the body of Jesus and be like, no, he's right here. But they couldn't do it. Why? Because Jesus is alive. The tomb was really empty. Something really happened. And so what I think Matthew is trying to do in a very gentle and, and uh, storytelling way, he, he's saying to us, look, there's two types of people in this world. There are those who will hear the facts of the empty tomb and investigate what it means for their life. And then there are those who will hear the facts of the empty tomb and ignore them and live a lie. And he shows us the two temptations that would cause us to live a lie and to reject the facts of the empty tomb. The first temptation is power and control. The Pharisees, they didn't want to, the religious leaders and chief priests, they didn't want to admit that Jesus was alive because then they would have to admit that they were wrong. They would have to stop asking people to follow them and they would have to say, look, we all together need to follow Jesus. He's the Lord, not us. And they didn't want to give up power and control. They loved the power and control of their own life. And then the the soldiers were paid off. And the leaders said to them, and if if this comes to the governor's ears and there's any trouble, we'll take care of it. We'll give you comfort. And they were willing to ignore the facts and live a lie for the sake of money and comfort. Because if Jesus really was alive, they would have to admit that there's something more going on than just our present life. And and, and there's something more going on than our pleasure and our comfort and our money. We have to accept a bigger narrative going on. But it was the very thing that they were unwilling to do. And so in telling us this, Matthew is challenging us, how will we respond? Are you going to worship Jesus as Lord or are you going to live a lie because you love power and control? And you love the comforts of this life. And so now we get to the last thing. Jesus is really Lord. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. This is seven weeks, several weeks later. Um, Galilee is about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. They went to the mountain to which Jesus has directed them in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Don't you love that? They see the risen Jesus in the flesh. Some of the disciples are worshiping him. And then some are like, yeah, I don't know if I still believe. Like some of us in here are like, you know what? If God showed up in this church right now, I would believe. 
you'd probably still doubt. <laughs> now, this doubt is not an absolute rejection of Jesus, but rather it is a hesitation because the fact of the resurrection is so out of this world. And what it shows for us is this, is that doubt is an experience, it's a normal experience of being a Christian and being a human in this world. And it also shows us that God is not afraid of our doubt. And it also shows us that this story must be true because if the disciples were trying to fabricate, fabricate a conspiracy to create a new religion, they wouldn't have written in that they doubted. But look at what happens next. And Jesus came to them. He came both to those who were worshiping fully and those who had hesitation in his heart. Why? Because Jesus' love for you has nothing to do with your present emotion towards him. And he says to them this wild claim, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some authority, all authority. All authority. It's common to believe that there's this, uh, this forces of, of good and evil in this world. And they're equal and opposing forces, kind of like a yin and a yang. And you see it in movies like Star Wars and, and the world's just trying to seek balance. And, but they're equal opposing forces. Like there's Jesus who is good and then there's evil and they're just duking it out into the end. And we're not sure really who's going to win. But Jesus like, that stuff is hocus pocus. All authority has been given to me. I am victorious over all. I am king over all. Every angel, every demon, Satan himself will bow to me. I'm authority everything, over authority over everything invisible. I'm authority over everything visible. I'm authority over the galaxies and the planets and the stars and the moons and the meteorites. I'm the authority over every microorganism in the ocean. I'm the authority over every atom every subatomic particle, every electron, every proton, every neutron, I'm the authority over it all. I'm the authority over every raindrop, every snowflake. I'm the authority over every storm, every hurricane, every black hole, everything that could possibly scare us. I'm the authority over your health. I'm the authority over your life, your breath, your heartbeat. I'm the authority over your death. He says, also, I'm the authority over every king, every ruler, every emperor. Caesar is not Lord of all. I am Lord of all. All the powers of the world combined together do not equal the authority of Jesus Christ. And that means, too, this. He's the authority over every aspect of your life. He's the authority over the words you speak, the hairs on your head, or the lack of hairs on your head. He's the authority over the things you do in public and the things you do in private. He's the authority over all of your relationships. He's the authority over how you work and what your hobbies are. He's the authority over your family and your kids. He's the authority over all of your conflict and all of your times of joy. He's the authority over every second of your life. And I say that not that he's going to prevent you from doing things that are against his will, but at the end of the day, you're not going to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account and be measured by your authority. You will be measured by his authority. He is Lord of all. I like how Abraham 
Kuiper, he says it like this. He says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And this is huge, and it's, and it's massive. C.S. Lewis says it like this. It's going to be on the screen. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, how strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. The real Jesus is really Lord, and this is what he claims. And this is why it's so significant. Because everything that is wrong and broken and messed up and screwed up in this world is a result of sin. And John Stott tells us that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. It's a rejection of God's authority. But God has broken through on Good Friday and Easter with salvation. Sin is man substituting himself for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for man. In sin, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but in salvation, God sacrifices himself for a man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. And that's what happened on Good Friday. There was an exchange that happened. But what's going on here on Easter Sunday is Jesus is reestablishing himself as Lord of the universe. He's setting things right. And he's basically saying to all of us who read this account, it's the dawn of a new day. And it's the dawn of a new age. Now, don't you see? That's how Matthew tells this story. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, any Jewish reader would have read this and said, it's a new creation. Jesus is alive. A new era has come. Jesus is in authority. You see, brokenness happens when we make ourselves Lord, but renewal and restoration and healing happens when we bow to Jesus as Lord. And so Jesus is establishing himself as Lord of all, and he's saying, I'm going to bring healing to the whole world. And that's why he sends out his disciples. He says, go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations. Go out and teach every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every person in Sparks, Nevada, that I am Lord. And as you do that, you will witness renewal and healing and cleansing. And he says, and by the way, it's going to be tough. But don't be afraid because I'm with you until the end of the age. And when you have the Lord of the universe on your side, that's a game changer. Like when you're playing pickup basketball, then LeBron James shows up. That's a game changer. When you're carrying the message of Jesus' lordship to a world who doesn't want to hear it, but then Jesus promises, I am with you, that's a game changer. So I want you to see that the whole passage begins and ends with people worshiping. At the beginning, the two Marys fall on their face and worship. 
At the end, the disciples see Jesus and they worship. And what Matthew is telling us is that the whole point of his gospel, the reason he wrote this down, is he wants people to worship Christ. It's not enough that you want to obey him. It's not enough that you like his teachings. It's not enough that you think Jesus is really cool. The call is to worship him because he's really Lord. And so it challenges us, every one of us to respond. Now, maybe some of you are here and you're, you're surprised by this news. You're kind of new to Christianity. You haven't really read the story of the Bible. And you're like, this is interesting. This is confronting me. What's your job today? To do what the angels tell the Marys to do. Come and see. Investigate. Take a Bible home with you. Start reading it. Read the book of Matthew. Talk to some Christians. Ask them some questions. Come up forward and, and talk to me or another pastor and ask some questions. Keep coming back to church. Come and see. If the claims of Jesus are true, it's too good and too important to ignore. And then maybe some of you are refreshed by this news. What is your job? To take hold of his feet and worship. Don't get so busy with eating pork today and eating potatoes and whatever else your family eats on Easter that you forget to take hold of his feet and worship. And let me remind you that when these people bowed with their face to the ground and they took hold of his feet, it was a posture of absolute surrender. And this is the job of every Christian who encounters Christ to say to them, Jesus, I am yours and whatever you dish out in my life, I trust you. I wonder if there's something you're not surrendering to Christ this morning. Surrender it to him because he is good and he is Lord of all. And then lastly, maybe some of you are, are empowered by this message. You're fired up. You're pumped. Jesus is Lord of all. Let's go tell the world. That's your job. Go tell the world. But start with the neighbor across the street. Start with the person who sits next to you. Start with your family member. This phrase, go tell the world, is actually can be translated as you go. It means that we're supposed to gospel, gossip this message of the gospel everywhere we go. So that's how we're supposed to respond. Now there's a warning here. The warning is this. Don't be somebody who rejects the message of the empty tomb because you like your own comfort and money. And don't be somebody who rejects the message of the empty tomb because you love your power and control. For the Christians, this message is too wonderful to keep to ourselves. But for all of us, this message is too important to simply push aside for such small reasons. How will you respond? Let's pray. God, we pray that you would just help us to respond with the heart of these Marys. That we would see the empty tomb and we'd be filled with fear and great joy. And then upon beholding your face, we'd fall at your feet and worship you. Help us with our hearts and our feeble faith to take hold of Christ. And where we have doubt in our heart, we pray, Lord, that you would meet us in the midst of our doubt. And we just confess to you, God, our tendency to love money and comfort and the things of this world more than we're willing to surrender to you. And we confess that we love being the captain in the, of our own ship and we love to, to rule our own lives. We just ask for the courage to surrender control to you because at the end of the day, we're not in control, you are. Lord of the universe, 
Let us see you for who you really are. Amen.